The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. So we are now in what is often referred to as the passion narrative in our study of the gospel according to Mark. As we come to this passage, we have to be aware that many of the threads of theology and prophecy in the tapestry of Scripture find their gathering point here in this passage. Matter of fact, one of the great pressures I felt in preparing the study for this morning was how to compress all of the ways that the cross has changed reality for eternity into just one single three-hour sermon in the 103-degree weather. You see, the, de- the depth of the meaning of the cross and the death of Jesus has exponential implications. Now, when trying to understand or visualize the power of exponential growth, teachers will often use the analogy of folding paper. So a, a, a page from the Bible here this very thin paper that is here, is about 0.001 centimeters thick. Now imagine that you had a piece of paper that was the thickness of a page from the Bible and is the size of a piece of newspaper. Now this is not ordinary paper, it is magical paper. Uh, It is magic because when you fold it, it maintains the same thickness, it's unchanged in its thickness, but stretches back to its original width so that you can refold it every time, again and again, sort of infinitely, if you will. Now, that means that every time you fold it, it doubles in thickness, but is also able to be folded again, no matter how thick it gets. Now, here's what happens. At 0.001 centimeters... If you fold it in half, it becomes 0.002, right? It doubles in thickness. And then it's 0.004 and 0.008 and 0.016 and 0.032, 0.064, and so on. So by seven folds, you're at 0.064. At 17 folds, you are 2 to the power of 17. That's 131 centimeters. It's just over 4 feet tall. So 17 folds, just over 4 feet tall. But at 25 times, you are 33,554 centimeters. That's over 1,100 foot, right about the same uh, height as the Empire State Building. It's almost a quarter of a mile. And if you continue folding, 25, after 25 times, you fold to 30. 30 folds gets you to 6.67 miles. 40 folds gets you to 6,000 832 miles, and a single page from the Bible folded just 45 times would reach the distance of the moon. That's 230,900 miles. So with just 45 folds, you can make it to the moon. And if you just fold it one more time, you make it all the way back to earth. If you keep going, you, you can... Keep carrying this out. 48 times gets you 1,749,004 miles. Here's the point. The point is this. 
A thousand Sundays would be insufficient to explore the implications of this moment in order to give it a thorough treatment. The implications of the cross are exponential. Every time we come back to it, there are new dimensions of its impact to explore. And so today, we will barely scratch the surface of the grace of God being displayed to us through the cross. This is a subject that we will continue to grow in over the course of our entire lives as disciples of Jesus. And beyond that, it is what provokes the worship of creation itself, of God's people, of even the angels for all of eternity with increasing glory. The words of amazing grace come to mind here. It's true, 10,000 years will still be just the beginning of reasons to praise the grace of God as displayed through the cross. So our plan today is to simply tell the story and bring in the historical details that will help us understand some of the nuance of what is happening in the death of Jesus. And then at the end, we will come back, draw a few points of application to draw encouragement from. And so let's go ahead and dive in. I want to give you a little bit of context to catch us up, remind us of where we're at in the scriptures. At this point, Jesus has been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, He was tried illegally in the private residence of Caiaphas, the high priest, and Annas, his father-in-law. And because they could not legally kill him under Roman authority, they had to take Jesus to the Roman governor, Pilate, in order to have him executed. Now, Pilate was reluctant to do so, and so he sent Jesus to Herod once he heard that Jesus was a Galilean because Galilee was under Herod's authority. But Herod found nothing wrong in Jesus, even though Pilate was hoping it would relieve him from having to make the call. He allows, Herod allows uh, Jesus to be beaten, and then returns him back to Pilate. And in one final attempt to pacify the angry mob, Pilate offers up an alternative of releasing either Jesus or Barabbas. Barabbas was a domestic terrorist who was guilty of murder. He had killed somebody. And the crowd then begins to cry out for Barabbas. Jesus is now to be crucified. There is no other route to alleviate the situation. So Pilate has him scourged. The crowd that is there has been hoping for Jesus' death and destruction. And when Pilate has him scourged, this was a public method of extracting a confession out of the guilty. Jesus was tied to a whipping post, and a Roman officer was placed nearby with a piece of paper. At the top of the paper was written the name of the accused, the place or the district that he was from, the town that he was from, 
and the accusation against him. And then as the whipping ensued, any additional crimes that were extracted during this whipping would be written underneath of that accusation as well. It was the handwriting of ordinances against the accused. Then this sign would be posted over the top of the accused when they were crucified so that everyone could see the crimes that they were guilty of. And this was one of the ways that Rome controlled and and made its people to fear their authority and their rule. You, You could clearly see in the crucified and the sign that hung above them the results of resisting Rome's rule or stepping out of your place under their rule. Now, what's interesting here is that Jesus had nothing to confess. So the only thing that was written of Jesus was his name, the place he was from, Jesus of Nazareth, and the accusation that was made against him, the king of the Jews. Now, capitalizing on the charges against him, the soldiers that whipped him added to the torment by mocking him. And we pick this up in verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. Now Mark here places heavy emphasis on the ways that Jesus was mocked as king. This is because the idea of a messianic king is central to understanding what is happening in this moment. The way that the events unfolded were meant to be a sort of mock coronation of the king of the Jews. But for Mark, the author of this gospel, and for the early church, it is seen as triumphant. Remember, in the opening chapter, in Mark's gospel, when it first starts out, how the author starts with this idea of Jesus being the king of the kingdom of God. And and the, the gospel of Mark tracks forward to this moment to show the king being enthroned. And it looks like defeat to the world. But for the Christian, for the follower of Jesus, for the disciple, it is the greatest moment of victory. Remember how Mark opens up with John, the herald, announcing the arrival of the Messiah or the king. And Jesus is then baptized. He goes to duke it out with Satan in the desert in the temptation story. And then when he emerges from the desert, he begins proclaiming something. Let me read to you from Mark's own words, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. He comes out of the desert after the temptation. And verse 14 says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Okay, now let's pause here for just a moment. You say, okay, 
We, we use this word gospel sometimes. I've never maybe heard it. Gospel of God. What was the gospel of God? Is that different than the gospel that we preach? What is it? Well, verse 15 clarifies it for us. And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So the gospel of God, the, the gospel that is, is this gospel of the kingdom. This idea of the kingdom of God is central to understanding the Bible as a whole. You see, after the first humans rejected God's rule over their lives, God spent the entire Old Testament telling humans that he would form a new kingdom where the people would be redeemed from their rebellion and empowered to live under his authority. The kingdom of God is not merely the people of God. It is not simply the people that come into the kingdom of God. Rather, the kingdom of God is the surrender of all things to the rule of God. The kingdom of God is his reign and his rule over all things. And then the people of God, which Israel imperfectly foreshadowed as a nation, are the willing participants in living under the reign or the rule of God. So Mark then goes on to, to, to demonstrate at great length what is happening as the king of this kingdom begins demonstrating his authority. Well, and maybe another way to say this is what would happen... If God had his way on earth, the same way it is done in heaven. Well, it would look like the ministry of Jesus. Nature surrenders to his authority. Remember the wind and the waves? Demons fear and surrender to his authority. Sickness and disease would surrender to his authority. Even death would lose its power when the king of kings commands it. Jesus has been demonstrating the coming kingdom of God and what it will look like in fullness when it arrives. And now, here in this moment, as the soldiers beat Jesus, they are mocking it. They're deriding it. They dress the beaten Jesus like a king with a crown of thorns and a, a mock scepter. Mockingly, they salute him and say, Hail, King of the Jews! They march him through the city outside the gates to crucify him. The cross and the crucifixion act as a mock enthronement. However, for the early church and for us, it is indeed the greatest display of God's love and commitment to saving the lost. It is the passageway for the people of God to enter into the kingdom of God and bring their lives under the reign and rule, the authority of King Jesus. Verse 21, And they compelled the passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Now, on the way to be crucified, 
Jesus collapses from weakness under the weight of the patibulum or the, the cross arm of the cross. There's a man named Simon, an African man from Cyrene, who is standing nearby, and he is compelled to carry the cross arm for Jesus up the hill to where Jesus will be crucified. Now imagine taking that walk as he shares the burden of the Savior all the way to his death. I wonder how many times their eyes met or perhaps what words might have been exchanged between Simon and Jesus. Evidently, Simon became a believer after the crucifixion. His son, Rufus and Alexander, were known by the early church. This is why their names are mentioned here. Rufus also gets a mention in Romans chapter 16, verse 13, right alongside of his mother. And they're mentioned as personal friends of the Apostle Paul who who helped him on his journeys to proclaim the gospel. Paul asks that they be greeted and received by the church in Rome, which Peter eventually became the pastor of. And remember, Peter is likely... The the hidden voice behind the gospel of Mark. He's the one likely dictating to Mark all the details in this moment. So they're mentioned here because they are known in the church of Rome. And, And many have pondered the impact of this moment on Simon. As he would have been covered through carrying the cross. Covered in the precious blood of Jesus as he walked up the hill. Apparently, it not only changed his whole whole life, but it changed his whole family as well. Verse 22. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. It's assumed here that the the mixture was a mild painkiller meant to help with the suffering of the cross. Jesus, however refuses it. He chooses, rather, to endure the full pain and torment of the cross. Unlike our many methods of medicating the pain of life away, Jesus chooses to entrust it all to the Father and to endure the pain of the cross. Verse 24, the first part here. And they crucified him. This short sentence encapsulates something for us that's hard to imagine, though it was commonplace in the Roman Empire. The cross arm was affixed to another pole in the typical way that we see the the cross pictured or imagined in present forms of art today or jewelry. Jesus' body was laid on the pole His hands were stretched out. And then nails, using a hammer, nails were driven through his wrists and through his feet. The sign of his accusation was placed over the top of the pole. It was hoisted then into an upright position teetered precariously on the edge of a hole or a socket that it could slide down into. 
And as they inched it forward, it fell down into the socket, jerking his body against the nails. And he was hoisted to this upright position to be on display to the jeering crowds. 24 goes on to say, and they divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him and the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. Jesus was crucified at 9 a.m. And while Jesus hung in agony, soldiers played games at the foot of the cross. They gambled for his garments. What a terrible thing to play games at the foot of the cross. Mark again highlights the reference to Jesus as king. This was something that the crowds had mocked, but early Christians revered. Verse 27. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. The reference to robbers on his right and on his left points us as readers back to the request of James and John that they would be placed on his right and left when he came into his kingdom. Jesus responded to their request by saying, you don't know what you're asking in Mark 10, 38. Verse 29, excuse me, verse, uh, verse 28. Verse 29, forgive me. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. And so also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. When they said, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, this was the false accusation that was made about Jesus before the high priest and the council. And then they mocked and they said, he, cannot, he saved others and he cannot save himself. I think Kathy made a brilliant observation during sermon prep this week. She said they didn't realize it at the time, but they were kind of right. He can only save others if he does not save himself. So they continued to mock, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And even those that were crucified with him, the one on his right and the one on his left, they also reviled him. Now the two thieves crucified next to Jesus were both mocking Jesus early on. But as Jesus continued to suffer one of them changed his mind about Jesus and began to believe that he really was indeed God's promised Messiah, the promised king. Verse 33, And when the sixth hour, that's noon, had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. That's about 3 p.m. Now it's difficult for me to find words to describe what is happening in this moment as darkness falls over the land. It is, it's so horrific. 
that my fear is I'm not really going to express it well. You see, Passover takes place during a full moon. And you cannot have a solar eclipse during a full moon. What this means then is that the Father turned off the lights to the earth in that moment. This is a supernatural darkness. This is not just some phenomenon in the universe. God turned off the light from the sun and prevented it from shining, at the very least, on the land of Israel at that time. That is the weight of this moment. God stopped the sun from shining. It's as if what is taking place on the cross is so horrific that creation itself must close its eyes. The three hours that are mentioned here are three hours of silence and of dread. During that time, no words are spoken by Christ from the cross. It is likely that it is this exact moment that the wrath of God at sin is being poured out in judgment upon Jesus. Jesus' human body becomes a sort of cosmic sacrificial lamb that absorbs the extracted and compressed sins of humanity. And simultaneously, as he absorbs the sins of the world, he bears the judgment for them under the hand of God. Now, to try and understand this, we have to sort of split the fabric of space and time to see beyond the mere dimensions of our five senses. In the physical dimension, Jesus... The God-man is physically hanging upon a Roman cross outside of the gates of Jerusalem. His body physically is suffering. In the eternal dimension, though, the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, is doing the high priestly work of making atonement for the sins of man. But instead of it being through the use of the blood of bulls and goats, it is the blood of his own human body that is offered as a substitutionary payment for sin. And all of the Old Testament sacrifices were this sort of play acting, this prophetic picture being lived out among the people of God, anticipating... In, in play form, if you will, anticipating this moment where Jesus would actually finally take away sin. In addition to that, Jesus in his divine nature is entering into the true holy of holies, the very throne room of the Father, to intercede on behalf of all those who surrender to his rule and trust him as king. The earthly temple, the earthly tabernacle was this picture of the heavenly reality. It was a blueprint of the true dwelling place, the true abode of God. 
And this moment of Jesus making atonement for sin was performed as a prophetic performance theater annually in Israel through the celebration of the Day of Atonement in the nation of Israel. The high priest carried the names of the 12 tribes of Israel upon his shoulders, and then he wore this breastplate that had 12 stones on it. Each of the stones represented one of the tribes of Israel. He would, on the Day of Atonement, make a sacrifice first for his own sins, and then for the people as he went into the Holy of Holies to intercede and to gain national forgiveness for the people of God. And now, in this moment, that's been played out annually for hundreds of years throughout the history of Israel. Now, in this moment, the reality of that is taking place through Jesus. Now, as darkness covers the earth, Jesus, the king and great high priest of the kingdom of God, is making atonement for the sins of all who will trust and follow him. They are upon his shoulders. They, their names, sit upon his heart. He has no sins to atone for for himself. And so his blood is used to atone for the sins of his people. Verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, here in this cry, is quoting the very first line of Psalm 22. In quoting this psalm, Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy that is contained in it. The psalm is chock full of prophetic imagery where it plainly states that the Messiah would be surrounded by enemies, that he would be mocked, that, he would, that his clothes would be gambled for, that his hands and feet would be pierced, that water would flow from his body, and that his heart would fail. Now, it was common for rabbis to quote the first line of the passage of Scripture and for his disciples then to quote the rest. And so Jesus is signaling the importance and divine providence of this moment through the use of this psalm. He's letting his disciples know. He's letting people know. He's cluing them in that what is happening right now in this moment is bigger than what it looks like on the surface. This has been God's plan. But I also think that there is sort of a surrender to the Father in this cry. This same psalm is also filled with imagery that highlights the trust of the Messiah in God. The trust that he would preserve his life. It speaks of Messiah as proclaiming the message of salvation to his brothers. That all the nations, as a result of his suffering, shall worship before God. And that the kingship belongs to the Lord, and that he rules over the nations. In other words, though he is suffering, Jesus is encouraging his own heart. He's encouraging himself through the prophetic words of this psalm. He is proclaiming that his suffering will serve 
God's eternal purpose. And he's proclaiming that even as he suffers. Verse 35. Some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. Now this is understandable. Remember, Jesus has been beaten quite badly. No doubt his face is swollen, his lips are swollen, his mouth is bloodied. And as he hangs upon the the cross, gasping for breath, and he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, they, they misunderstand what he's saying. They think he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. For three hours, the sun did not reach the earth while Jesus bore the white hot judgment against sinners in his own body. And when Jesus breathed his last, the veil in the temple that separated the people from the presence of God, represented by the Ark of the Covenant in the temple, that veil was torn in two. Matthew's Gospel tells us as well that there was an earthquake at the same moment. Now, in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant was initiated with the blood of sacrificial animals. Half of the blood was sprinkled on the altar. The other half was sprinkled on the people of Israel as they vowed to live under God and his direct rule. Everyone in that culture understood that you cannot make a covenant without the shedding of blood. In order to make an agreement that puts you in binding relationship with somebody else, which is called a covenant... There had to be the shedding of blood. And now as Jesus cries out and breathes his laughs, the Father tears the veil in the temple. And Jesus is now shown to be the sacrifice to cleanse his people and bring them into covenant relationship with God. Now there's two important things that I think we should consider when we talk about what is being communicated to God's people through this important act of the tearing of the veil. Remember, this is a divine act. The hand of God is, is operating in the physical world. God himself tears the veil in the temple. This is an act of God. God himself shakes the earth. God himself dims the light of the sun. He is purposeful in what he's doing, and we need to pay attention in this moment. So there's a couple of things for us to consider. First of all, God is declaring open access. Remember, only the high priest could enter into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, and he could only do it on one day of the year, on the Day of Atonement. And not without being covered in blood himself, having a sacrifice for his own sins. The people, though, the common people, could never enter into the presence of God. They were always separated from the presence of God. Now, here in this moment, through the tearing of the veil, 
The presence of God is made open to all. Anyone can draw near through the new covenant of grace that is now established by Jesus. But there's a second thing. There's a second thing for us to consider, and that is this. That God is saying that the way to him is no longer through a curtain and no longer through the old covenants, but rather it is through his son. How do you get to God? It is through his body. It is through his blood offered as the atoning sacrifice for sin. If you want to get close to Yahweh, it is not through a temple. It is not through a holy place. It is through a person. It is through Jesus. And when you take those two truths of what is being communicated in the tearing of the veil, when you take those two truths together, you understand something very important. The covenant people of God are those that come to him through Jesus. They are invited to draw near to God through the new covenant established by Jesus. And as a result... The old covenant is superseded by the new covenant as a means by which humans and God are in relationship with one another. Do you see what's happening here? God is saying to his people, everyone is invited, but you come through my son. You don't come through the curtain any longer. You come through my son. It is through his body, through his flesh, through his blood. You come through him. But everybody is invited. It's not just one nation. It's not just one person. All are welcome. Verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Now in the Gospel of Mark, perhaps you'll remember that Peter, as an Israelite, proclaimed Jesus as the Christ in Mark chapter 8, verse 29. And now you have a Gentile centurion making the same claim. Jews and Gentiles proclaiming him as Christ and King. After three hours of darkness and the earthquake, this man that was formerly a torturer, this man that was formerly a mocker, a persecutor of Christ, professes that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. Now, we don't know what happened to this soldier, but apparently his mind was changed about Jesus during those events. Verse 40, there were also women looking on from a distance, from among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joses, and Salome, and when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. There were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Interesting here, the contrast. All of the men, all of the friends, all the disciples of Jesus had left and had abandoned him. And it is the women who remain until the end. How many times in Scripture is it the women who demonstrates such great faith. There's so much, men, if I could just offer a quick encouragement, there is so much for us to learn from the women around us about what it means 
to love and follow God just as much as they need us and our leadership. We need them and their voices. Verse 42. And when evening had come since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. There it is again. You see that phrase again, the kingdom of God. He took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now in Luke 23, 50 and 51, we learn that Joseph was actually a part of the council or the Sanhedrin, this group of Jewish religious leaders who called for Jesus' crucifixion. However, as we read in Luke 23, 51, we see that Jesus was opposed, or excuse me, that Joseph was opposed to the council's decision and was in fact a secret follower of Jesus. Joseph was a wealthy man, according to Matthew 27, 57. And although the source of his wealth is unknown, uh, we do know that he used his wealth to honor Jesus in his death. He was a good and upright man, Luke 23, 50 says. Both he and Nicodemus came and requested the body of Jesus to give it a proper burial. And unbeknownst to Joseph and Nicodemus, their choice to put Jesus in Joseph's tomb fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy, spoken hundreds of years before Jesus' death. It says, He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Isaiah, Isaiah 53, 9. This is one of the many prophecies that have confirmed Jesus' identity as the Messiah, the Son of God. Verse 44, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. Summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. We know that crucifixion could sometimes take days or a great many hours. It was a slow, painful, agonizing death. And so Pilate is surprised here. Our friend Dan, who joined us this week as a pastor from Minnesota, asked the simple question during our sermon prep this, this last week. Are we to believe that this centurion here who comes and get, delivers the news to Pilate is the same centurion who professed faith? In Jesus. Verse 45. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought, bought lin, a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in the tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joses, saw where it was laid. As we conclude chapter 15 here, we're compelled to ask, what is the meaning of the cross? What is the meaning of the cross? Now, to understand the meaning of the cross, we must be careful to think biblically. Most of the great heresies in church history are directly related to the cross itself. Each of these false doctrines diminish the work of the cross, sometimes by diminishing uh, some aspect of Jesus' nature, either his divinity or his humanity. And if you do that on, 
either side, it diminishes the work of atonement in some way. Others diminish the work of the cross itself. And when this happens, crucial aspects of what Christ is accomplishing are disregarded. And Jesus is only demonstrating his power over Satan or is only setting an example of what it looks like to to live in love. And these false doctrines claim that salvation from the wrath of God for sin or atonement is not center stage here. They don't like the idea of atonement. They're trying to get around what it means that we are sinners, that, that Christ had to die on our behalf. They're uncomfortable with that idea. What it says about the justice of God and that he was willing to let his son suffer. So there's insufficient time to explore all of what is happening at the cross, but I want to take the time to explore just a few thoughts about what the cross meant to the early church, how they interpreted the meaning of the cross. These understandings come to us from the scriptures themselves. So something to take note of, for those of you who are note takers. They saw the cross, they saw in the cross, Jesus as our example. Jesus as our example. In self-sacrificial love for others. Paul would write to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 5 verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Ready for this? As Christ loved and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The cross teaches us how to love like God loves, self-sacrificially. This is a fragrant offering and is received as worship to God the Father. Marriage. Ephesians goes on in the same chapter, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23. It tells us that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It also uses the example of the honor given to Christ for his sacrificial love as a template for the type of honor that should be given to husbands by wives. We learn how to love by looking at... The example of God's love displayed for us in the cross. Jesus is not only our example in self-sacrificial love for others, but Jesus is our example in suffering. Now there's many types of suffering. The early church saw in uh, in Jesus' suffering on the cross a call to endure suffering for the glory of God. They saw themselves as becoming a part of what they called the body of Christ. And and for them, that meant also that the various trials that they were enduring were a sort of extension of his suffering in the world. They embraced this same suffering the way that Jesus did and chose to believe that it was in some way teaching them about the heart of God or the nature of his kingdom. And in some way, it was also becoming this visual display of the worthiness of God and his kingdom in the present world that runs from suffering. So, Jesus is our example 
in suffering. But quick note, by the way, I, I just need to say this because there is so much bad thinking around this. God is not opposed to suffering in the lives of those he loves. If there's any one thing that you, you hear or see in the cross of Christ, you should know this. God is not opposed to using suffering in the lives of those he loves very, very much. Those he loves greatly. Some of his greatest redemptive work emerges through suffering rather than through escaping it. It's okay to cry out in your hurt and pain. To say to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet at the same time, even in that cry, is the cry, my God. It's you, Lord, who has allowed this. You have permitted this into my life. And I, I don't understand your purposes. And I feel abandoned in this moment. But God, I know that you use suffering for redemptive purposes. And I trust you to redeem even this. Suffering is not the cruelty of God. Isn't that what the cross teaches us? If Jesus endured all of the wrath at sin in himself on the cross, then we are not suffering because, because God is punishing us. He may be training, he may be redeeming suffering that we're going through, he may be using it in some way, but it is not his cruelty. And we know that because of what his son endured on our behalf. And so there's many types of suffering. There's suffering from resisting sin. Hebrews 12, verses 3 through 4, encourages us in this way. It says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Here, here's, here's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's saying when you're, you're going through something, you're suffering as a result of not wanting to sin, not wanting to give in. I just want to remind you, Christ endured to the uttermost, to the very end of his life without sinning. You haven't gotten there yet. Keep going. He's your example in suffering from resisting sin. He's your example in suffering from persecution. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12-14 through 14 says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Now that first part gets quoted all over the place, right? Notice what the rest goes on to say though. As though it was something strange that were happening to you but rather rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. In other words, when you suffer as a result of persecution, when you go through difficulty, when the unbelieving spouse leaves, 
When the trial comes, when you lose your job, when, when, when some amount of suffering enters your life because you have been faithful to stay under the reign and rule of Jesus and to honor him with your life, you should know that the glory of God, the glory of the Spirit rests upon you in that moment. You are not suffering in vain. Jesus is our champion who gains for us victory. Through his death on the cross and the resurrection, Jesus gives victory to all those in his kingdom over sin, Satan, and death. That is, past, present, future sin. He paid the penalty. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 5 tells us, Surely our griefs he himself bore. And our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. He paid the penalty for our sin. But not only that, he gave us power over sin. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. Through his death you have victory over sin. You don't have to be a slave, Romans 6 tells us. Not only did he free us from the penalty and the power, but also from the presence of sin. Romans chapter 8, verses 15 to 17. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. In other words, here's what it's saying. If you were adopted into the family by the work of Jesus on the cross, you also get the rewards that Jesus expects in the coming kingdom. You share in that too. You share in his death, you share in the resurrection, you share in his suffering, and you share in the glory that is to be revealed hereafter. Jesus is our champion who gains victory for us over sin, over Satan. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too, Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. Victory over Satan and finally victory over death. Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 10, for you note-takers. We've been united with him 
like this in death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again, and death no longer has mastery over him. The death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God, and we get to be partakers of that as well. Death no longer has a sting, to quote the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. It's the moment that we transition to life. So, okay, see, Jeremy, great theology, awesome. I love all the quoting scripture. That's great. It makes me feel like we're at least talking about the Bible here. That's awesome. How do we apply this? What do we do with this? A few things. Two things I want you to take note of, and there's some, some sub points. I just got like two more hours here. I promise we'll be done. <laughs> two points of application. First of all, preach the cross to yourself. Preach the cross to yourself. What do you mean? First of all, sin is serious. Jesus shows us the sinfulness of sin contrasted with the amazing love of God. Creation can't bear to look at it. The world closes its eyes. Jesus' physical body becomes this display of the seriousness of sin. It is an outward demonstration of the spiritual reality of what sin does to our souls. God does not wink at sin. It is so serious that when Jesus asked the Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from before me. And the answer was, there is no other way other than your death. Sin has cost God much. It is no light affair to sin. If you don't think sin is serious, look at Jesus on the cross and ask, how serious does God take it? Preach the cross to yourself. Sin is serious. Preach the cross to yourself. Shame is dealt with. Shame no longer has to be the driving force in the life of those who trust in Christ. Here, let, me, let me say that again. Shame no longer has to be the driving force in the life of those who trust in Christ. In the cross, Christ absorbed the full wrath of God at sin. Now guilt is this feeling bad over something that I've done. That's a good thing. It brings conviction, brings repentance. That's a good thing. Shame is an identity issue, though. Shame says, I feel bad about who I am. The byproduct of feeling shame keeps you stuck in a cycle of sin by needing to seek relief from feeling bad. Feeling bad about who you are is not a motivator for obedience. It seems like it will be, but it does not. It actually provokes sinful behavior and comfort-seeking behaviors. Rather, we are encouraged that it is God's love that encourages us forward in discipleship. It is the love of Christ that compels me, Paul said. John spent a lot of ink in 1 John focusing us on the love of God that motivates a loving response in us. Preach the cross to yourself Sin is serious, shame is dealt with, and fear is gone. I no longer have to have fear 
in coming to God in spite of my imperfections. I can come boldly. We're told in 1 John 4, 18, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We're also encouraged by the writer of Hebrews, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us then, here's what he says, check this out, let us then, because of what Jesus did, because we have a compassionate high priest, because of what he did on the cross, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is why Paul said to the Corinthians, I desire to proclaim Christ in him crucified. Because the cross changes everything in the life of the believer. Second point here, preach the cross to others. When Paul wrote that to the Corinthians, he said, And I came to you, brothers, when I came to you, brothers, this is 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. I wasn't trying to sell you on something. I wasn't trying to philosophize with you. But in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He said, I just... Decided when I came to you, I was just going to talk about the cross. I wasn't going to philosophize with you. I was going to tell you what Jesus did and let the Spirit of God do what the Spirit of God does through the proclamation of that message. When we preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified, we allow God to work in miraculous ways. We let the gospel rest solely upon the work of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit to bring conviction. The cross speaks to every class and tribe of people the message that they are more, more sinful than they know and more loved than they can possibly imagine. Here at the cross, thieves on death row, rich and poor, male and female, Jew and Gentile are all changed by Jesus. Simon the Cyrene was forever changed as was his family. The thief found faith in the final hours of his death. The centurion came to renounce Caesar as the son of God and believed in Jesus instead. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. As the band comes up to lead us in worship and as we consider the weight and the glory of the cross, Lord, I pray that, come, that bubbling up from our own hearts, from our souls, would come true, deep, heartfelt worship and appreciation. That we would become excellent as disciples 
in preaching the gospel to ourselves and preaching the gospel to others. Not worrying about rejection, just letting the word of the cross, letting the hope of the resurrection do what it does in saving the lost. Continue to shape us as we meditate upon what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.